Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hello, welcome to the Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, the brutal attack on civilians in southern Israel last week has, it's fair to say, shocked much of the world. The response from Israel, up to this point at least, has been widespread and indiscriminate, certainly appears indiscriminate, bombing of Gaza, which has left huge numbers, including, I'd say, many, many children, homeless, injured or dead. And all the indications are that it is going to continue for some time and inevitably make the region a far more dangerous place. So how has it come to this? For many of us in the West, the defining conflict of the Middle East, for the most part, has involved skirmishes and a low-level hum of conflict that flares up now and again over there. Sometimes it has about it the ring of that awful term that was once used in relation to the north of Ireland, an acceptable level of violence. But then along comes massacres like last Saturday and we suddenly are shaken awake to what is going on. But what is going on? And is there any prospect at all of it stopping any time soon? I'm delighted to say I'm joined to discuss this by a man who has a, is a major authority in the region, Francesca Cavatorta, who is Professor of Politics in the University Laval in Quebec and previously was engaged in a similar capacity in DCU in Dublin, where he co-authored the book Politics and Governance in the Middle East. Francesca, you're very welcome. Thank you very much, Mick. Thank you very much. Francesca, just to deal with the awful events in Israel last Saturday, I mean, I've heard some people say that it was inevitable on the basis of how those in Gaza are being treated by Israel. But others suggest that there was a specific geopolitical aspect to it in that some Arab countries are normalising relations with Israel and Hamas wanted to stop that. What's your opinion on it? I think there is, unfortunately, I have to say, uh, a degree of inevitability to what has has happened. Uh, This doesn't mean condoning what has happened, of course, uh, but certainly it is a new phase in a conflict that um, does not seem to have a political solution or actually better, a conflict that has a political solution, but no actors willing to implement that political solution. In a sense, everybody knows what the solution is, but no one seems to be prepared to uh, make the concessions necessary to bring that solution about. Uh, And unfortunately, as I said, the idea is that this was always going to happen, maybe not something of this scale and certainly not something of this brutality, but something like this was always on on the cards given the absence of a political resolution. Um, I don't necessarily buy too much into the idea that this was done because Arab countries are normalizing their relations with with Israel. Um, In a way, the Palestinians have known for a long time that the other Arab countries don't much care for the Palestinians, whether the relations with Israel were normal, normalized or not. Uh, I don't think the countries in the Gulf, Saudi Arabia, Morocco, Sudan, had ever given much thought to the Palestinians over the last 20, 25 years. Um, and 
On top of that, I don't think that this is going to prevent further normalizations. I don't see Morocco or the United Arab Emirates to kind of, you know, back down from their normalization. Maybe they will pause it for a while. But I think it's something that it's a bit inevitable because their idea is about long term or their strategy and their thinking is about kind of containing Iran, not necessarily satisfying what the Palestinians might want. And in that context, also, the role of Iran has been, it's been suggested, was a major factor in this. What do you think of that? I'm not entirely sure about the role of Iran. I don't think directly they have much access to to, to Gaza. Um, I think as well that for the Iranians, something like this is, is a bonus, maybe from a diplomatic point of view, you know, because it kind of makes them the leader again of the axis of resistance, uh, which seem to have kind of seem to have lost a bit of its drive in the in the last few years. Uh, but direct involvement, I, I I don't really see it. I think the priority for the Iranians over the last ten years has certainly been Syria uh, and Lebanon, um, not 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 Gaza. But as I said, I think this might be a bonus for them because they can position themselves as kind of one of the countries leading the axis of resistance, leading the resistance to Israeli occupation and to the existence of Israel itself. Okay, and just briefly, and I mean, I know it's going to be very, it's going to be familiar to some, but I I suggest it's not familiar to a lot of people. Gaza itself, Francesco, as we see, like conditions, humanitarian conditions appear to be appalling here prior to even the the, the bombing that's going on since the the attack um, by Hamas on Israel, the bombing that's going on by the Israelis, but even prior to that, dreadful humanitarian conditions. Just briefly, would you give us a quick history of Gaza, how it came about? And as I understand it, the majority, if not the vast majority of people there are actually refugees from elsewhere in the region. They, they are, yeah, they are indeed. And uh, Gaza was part of, 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 or was supposed to become part of Egypt at some stage. Um, but the Israelis, uh, uh, 1967, they, they kind of occupied it. They withdrew from direct occupation of Gaza in 2005. It was a very controversial move, by the way. But there were a few settlers in Gaza, um, if I remember correctly, maybe number about 10,000, and they controlled kind of half the Gaza Strip. So, so for the Israeli government, it was a big deal to pull them out. I think it was a kind of good, done badly because it was done without consulting the Palestinians, but at least it was done. They pulled all the, the settlers out and then they basically decided to kind of encircle Gaza and, and, and just leave the Gazans to their own devices. And to be fair to the Israelis, I think the Gazans uh, have made a bit of a mess of their self-government. Admittedly, you know, it's hard to do uh, government when you're under a, a, a partial blockade, but still, they probably could have done. And I think this is what the Israelis kind of are, are, are saying now, and they might not necessarily be wrong in the sense, well, we give them we gave them an opportunity in 2005. You know, you have Gaza to yourself. See what you can do with it. Okay, we'll have to blockade it a bit. But, you know, you can certainly do things. Um, in 2007, Hamas takes over. And obviously, that's where the full kind of blockade of Gaza begins because Hamas, obviously, is for Israel, it's a terrorist organization, so it needs to be contained. And periodically, there have been skirmishes, you know, uh, uh, um, and, and, and quite savage bombing, you know, three times, I think. There were three Gaza wars before before this one. Um, and I think this one simply is just a bit more aggressive, more brutal, more indiscriminate than the previous one. And obviously, since 2007, the conditions in Gaza have been deteriorating from whatever, you know, whatever indicator you want to take, uh, 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 conditions have 
have deteriorated, whether it's education for children, you know, uh, the, the state of the health system, um, power plants, well, actually, they got only one. Uh, so, so, you know, the treatment of water, no jobs, no real possibility of getting out. So, obviously, you have now a generation of people born under virtual siege in a mass prison. I mean, all the conditions, I think, and I think most people would agree, are there for this to be an incredibly explosive situation. And in terms of culpability for that, okay, we, we, we see that Israel definitely in terms of the blockade, but would it be fair to say that Hamas bears some responsibility to the extent that their stated objective is basically to obliterate Israel and therefore... Israel is determined that there's no way they're going to allow normalisation there on the basis that that would strengthen Hamas's hand. I mean, is that fair or is it really just down to the way Israel has treated the Gazans? No, I think I think it's a, I mean, it's a fair assessment in the sense that obviously when you're treated in that way, then the tendency is to react by supporting, maybe not entirely, but certainly supporting a more aggressive Resistance, that's what they would call it. But then when the resistance becomes too aggressive, then Israel is with its own rights, I suppose, to say, well, guys, you're actually, you know, now undermining my sovereignty. You want us all dead, so we are going to retaliate. The retaliation in return, you know, kind of creates this, this tit-for-tat situation that doesn't seem to, to ever stop. It stops maybe for some time because the two parties decide kind of unofficially, that now it's time to, to, to revert back to a sort of status quo where there are no, uh, there's, there's no real fighting between the two and there are no terrorist attacks on the one side, that there's no retaliation on the other side, there is no bombing on the other side, there's just surveillance. But obviously, you know, how, how long can this status quo last? Well, not long, in part because, and this I think is maybe where the, 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 the real message, if there is a message to the brutality of uh, the Hamas attack, if there is one message is to say to the world and to the Israelis, we are still here. We exist. We, we might exist only for you in your nightmares because of what we've done, but, but we exist, uh, which in a way is a rather desperate message. This does not suggest that there's any political solution on the horizon for Hamas. In return, uh, allow me to say, I don't think the Israelis have much of a choice but to retaliate in the way in which they did. I know that everybody is saying, well, they, they, should, they should be more restrained, they, you know, there should be calls for restraint and so on. I think it's fundamentally misunderstanding why Israel came about, what Israel is about. And I know that we don't want to uncover, you know, our own European dark pages of history, but this, this conflict... <laughs> And it pains me to say that this, this conflict has its roots in, in Europe at the end of the day. And if one does not understand the perspective from which the Israelis are fighting and conducting war and so on, I think we are missing a very important part of the story. Again, does it mean condoning what they've done and what they do on a daily basis in the occupied territories? No, but the question is not condoning. If we want to explain and understand, then we've got to understand this as well, would anyone really in any country react differently to what happened from how Netanyahu reacted or the Israeli political establishment reacted? I, I don't see it. And if they say that they would, I'd say they're probably lying. 
Yeah, and it just that's, it's interesting because it does get forgotten at times. But there, uh, you, you point about the origins of Israel and forming the country after the Holocaust. And quite obviously in the psyche there, this notion that never again will we be vulnerable in any way following on from what occurred in Europe throughout the 30s and into right up to the end of the Second World War. And it's that psyche, isn't it, that drives their wish for security. But then again, an awful lot of people see that as having gone way too far to a point where the, the, their treatment of the Palestinians, some would suggest, veers dangerously close to the type of contempt that the Jews were shown in Europe back in the 30s and 40s. You know, it, it, it is not an unfair point, and I think others have mentioned, you know, among others, Norman Finkelstein, who wrote a very kind of famous and controversial book about the, the, the what he called the industry of the Holocaust, you know, uh, uh, the fact that, the, that Israel kind of justifies basically, ultimately, all its policies according to this mantra, well, look what you've done to us, you saw never again. And I do think maybe there is a, there is a, there is a fair point there to make. That's why I, I think we should not condone the reality of the occupation in the, in the territories, whether it's Gaza or the, or the West Bank. At the same time, though, I think that, that we would make a mistake if we thought that this is simply used as an excuse or as a cover, because that, that is not the case. Um, I have been fortunate enough to live for a few years in, in Jerusalem, and every time I had someone, you know, a friend or family member visiting, I always took them to the Holocaust Museum. Not so much to, to see it as a kind of museum, but, but to experience what it means for someone uh, that belongs to that particular you know, group to, to go to a place where you are basically told that you have faced in the past the scientific obliteration of the entire group. It's powerful and it functions as a powerful message, but it's not simply a message to cover up the injustices that have been perpetrated against the Palestinians. The real paradox in this is that the Palestinians are not really responsible for what happened to the European Jews. Uh, And they're certainly not as guilty as the Europeans of the hundreds of years of pogroms and discrimination against European Jews in the heart of Europe. So, you know, that, that unfortunately gets, gets forgotten sometimes. And again, this does not mean condoning the occupation. It simply means trying to understand why the reaction to Palestinians' resistance is perceived the way it is. Then, obviously, when one looks very coldly at, you know, the military imbalance, the power Israel has, the powerful friends Israel has, the situation kind of changes in a way. But but I don't think it should detract fundamentally from at least trying to understand where Israel is coming from. And I think sometimes that that is missing. Uh, uh, um, and I understand that it's missing from the Palestinians. The Palestinians don't care about that. And And again, maybe that's fair. But certainly, I think the Europeans, the Americans, and public opinion should know a bit better uh, 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 about about this. And that's maybe where the work should be done uh, in challenging what Israel is doing. Very good point, actually, yeah. And on that, Francesco, the closeness, I mean, certainly some people would suggest that 
in this intractable conflict that appears to be there between the Israelis and Palestinians, that the Europeans, Western Europe in particular, and the USA are very much, well, to a greater extent, on the side of the Israelis. Now, one may well imagine, is is that because uh, Israel is the one democracy there? Is it because strategically it's in the interests of the West to back Israel? Or is there also an element of guilt there about what those who had to go and form Israel were subjected to when they were in Europe? I think it's a combination of factors, really, as as most social phenomena really are at the end of the day. I think there is obviously, from the US point of view, at least from the early 1970s, a strategic interest in in Israel. And then since then, the the relationship between the two countries, and particularly between the political and military establishments in both countries, uh, the the relationship has been very, very close. So now after 50 years, you know, there are so many links that have been made at all levels that, you know, kind of breaking with Israel would be incredibly complicated. Um, from the part of the European Union, I think there is maybe, uh, uh, you know, kind of, you know, the guilt and, 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 and so on. But again, I think it's more about the fact that the Israelis, in a way, look a bit more like us. Uh, they're perceived to be more European. Um, and in terms of the European Union itself, well, you know, kind of big policy shifts need the consensus of all the countries in the world. So what is the alternative of not dealing with Israel? Well, the alternative that has been suggested is that the EU should boycott uh, the goods and services coming from Israel, for instance. Well, again, I go back to my previous point. Maybe we should think a bit more about what it would look like for the European Union, which has Germany as its center, and all the other European countries also were quite guilty of, you know, discriminating against the Jews, to say, well, we are going to put up now sanctions against the Jews. You know, kind of what, I think it, the optics would not be uh, very good, I, I, I would suggest. So there is, you know, more than one factor at, at play. I think the European Union gets sometimes unfairly treated. Uh, and I think maybe this is one of the cases. The European Union does what the European Union Member states tell it to do in, in in a way, and they're in a very awkward position because the member states are quite divided over the issue of of, of Israel Palestine in many ways. Ireland being a case and, in point, by the way. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, and actually, precisely what you're talking about there, what struck me, some of the reaction last week, and it was noticeable in this country, and I, I see from press the likes of the USA in particular, and elements of the UK, and sure elsewhere as well, that. The left, as it is, <laughs> broad term, but elements of the left, the lack of basic compassion on a human level for what occurred last Saturday. I was, personally, Francesca, is a bit taken aback of it coming from some quarters. It was nearly as if, um, well, they had it coming to them, their Israeli, on the basis of, of what had been done to the Palestinians. And there was no room in some quarters to just observe, well, actually, what they were first and foremost is largely young people either at, at, at a, a music event or people living in kibbutzes or what have you. And that lack of compassion, I found that strange and I particularly found it strange when, as as the point you've made, we we, we, we forget handily enough where Israel originally came from and we think of everything to a large extent in terms of its modern relationship with, with the Palestinians. No, I, I have to agree with you. I found it disturbing, really, uh, this, this, this lack of, of compassion for, 
for human life as as if in some sort of way they they deserved it and and I think you know if if we if we can kind of go back to the idea of inevitability I think as an analysts or scholars or researchers or what have you, we can kind of make a distinction between justification and, and explanation. So we can explain why this has happened without justifying the way in which it happened. So we can understand why it, th- this has happened, but we don't necessarily have to lose track of the fact that we are talking about, you know, other human beings and, you know, they're individually innocent of what of whatever policy we might want to, uh, you know, uh, make Israel responsible of. And it's the same when we talk about the other side. So, you know, um, it's, it's, we tend to forget as well, and this is something that maybe mainstream media should pick up a bit more. We tend to forget as well the daily struggles of the Palestinians. That's why I was saying that this is a message, you know, in a way of Hamas saying we exist is because we tend to forget that they exist. Um, and in a way, Israel tends to forget that they exist. Um, you know, I was reading the uh, United Nations uh, statistics about children killed uh, by Israeli army in, in, um, in 2022 and 2023 until the 31st of August, and it's 102. There, so 102 kids under the age of 17 were shot dead by the army in, 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 in the West Bank. In, in the last 18 months. Um, so, you know, again, the, 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 I think the Palestinians would argue, well, what about us then? You know, you know we don't get killed 600 or 1,000 a day. We just get killed one a day over, you know, 365 days. Is, does that make a difference? So I, I, I think that the attention that we have for the conflict, unfortunately, um, is kind of stop and go. And, and, and maybe if there were more attention every day, um, then the political actors would feel compelled to seek strategies that so far they have not sought out and maybe arrive at some sort of compromise political solution. Um, the problem is, I think, that the political solution that was envisaged with the peace accords in the early 90s is probably no longer doable now uh, on the ground. Okay, I'm just going to come to that in a minute. But first, I just want to ask you about Hamas in, in Gaza. Now, as we know, they, they came to power in 2007. There hasn't been an election since. Are they any good at the bread and butter stuff of, of governing and administering to the point that they could improve people, even within the confines of what's being imposed by Israel. Are they any good at that? And are they popular? Do they still have a, a popular mandate there? They do have a popular mandate uh, in a way, because I don't think you'd be able to organize something like this and set up something like this with some sort of genuine popular support. But the reality is that the vast majority of the Palestinians, whether in Gaza or the West Bank, uh, according to all kind of opinion polls, are kind of a bit sick and tired of politics. They're a bit sick and tired of politicians. In that respect, they're just like us uh, uh, everywhere across the world, <laughs> I suspect. Um, and in a way, Hamas has been not terrible, but not particularly good either. Uh, the constraints are immense, of course, on, 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 on such a government, uh, but they've not been particularly good. And what is striking is over the last few years, they've also been accused of, you know, kind of having been infected by corruption and, you know, that the kind of the higher-ups within within the movement uh, 
tend to kind of like their 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 life in villas in southern Gaza and benefit from uh, smuggling and and so on. I think this is a kind of a familiar story in, in, in for for our country as well in a way. So yeah. you know, I, I think these kind of things tend to happen in a place where most of the economy is informal, where there is very little exchange with the outside world, and where you're kind of enclosed in a in a, in a prison. Really, it's open air, but it, 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 it it's a prison. They've not been terrible, but then again, they've also subjected Gazans to three, four uh, rounds of, 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 of strikes from, from, from Israel over time, and massive strikes are that, at that, and the latest one probably the most devastating and, and the deadliest uh, uh, when, all this will be, when all this will be finished. And they obviously would have known that this was going to be the, the, the reaction yeah, from yeah, Israel. Yeah, that, that is... <laughs> Again, I call it the rationality of irrationality because what the actors are doing, in a way, is perfectly understandable and perfectly rational, and that's how they actually calculate it. You know, we'll strike you, knowing full well that then you'll strike us, and we'll both try to derive some sort of political capital from that. But then again, you know, probably I'm not the only one not to understand it unless we want to go into kind of great cultural explanations and this is a religious war and so on, which I don't really subscribe to. But at the end of the day, when, you know, when the dust settles uh, uh, on all of this, and it will, the, the Israelis will still have to contend with the Palestinian question and the Palestinians will still have to deal with the fact that Israel is not going to go anywhere. And so yeah. then what, what do we do? That is why, again, I go back and I hate to repeat myself, but, you know, this, this, this uh, uh, massacre, this atrocity, this war crime, really, because there's no other way to describe it, that Hamas committed uh, uh, on Saturday is really a message to say we exist. And, and it's a message that is delivered in the most awful way possible. But it's a message to everyone to say we're still here. We matter in a way. Yeah, and, and as you say, inevitably in that sense. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Just now, to switch it across, Francesca, to the West Bank, and different scenario there, you have the scenario where you have the settlements, where, where you have... Definitely, it would appear that an element of, of Israeli society believe some of it religiously in bringing these settlements in. They've caused all sorts of problems, the major problems in in all sorts of ways. There, they've accelerated, as I understand, particularly under Netanyahu, and, and I, I think most of the outside world, notwithstanding some allies and sympathy for Israel, are, are against that kind of thing. But in general terms, what is the difference? on a political and on, on, on an everyday life scale for the Palestinians in the West Bank as opposed to, to Gaza? So it's, it's a very good question. In fact, the, the West Bank is riddled with uh, settlements, uh, small ones, medium ones, 
and really large ones uh, attached to Jerusalem, for instance, but also uh, more more kind of independent and autonomous, and they're, and, they're, and they're scattered all over the West Bank. That looks like you know Swiss cheese in a way. So you know you, you so 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 that's why I was also mentioning that on the ground the situation has changed so much from the early nineties that it is probably impossible this today anyway to think about a, a two state solution. Um, and 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 the difference is that that a lot of the infrastructure in the West Bank is controlled by the Israeli army. So there's roads, there's 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 towers, there's roadblocks, uh, there's roads that are and, and, and motorways that are exclusively used by the settlers. So it is much more difficult for any Palestinians resistance if one were to emerge like the one in Gaza to actually uh, do things, to put operations together, to organize. And that is why what you have, in fact, is kind of Palestinian enclaves next to settlements all over the place. Um, but even the communications between the different Palestinian towns and cities is kind of regulated by the Israeli army. So there is a lot more presence of the state of Israel within the West Bank. In Gaza, the state of Israel decided to withdraw completely and just stay Outside, you know, they build the barrier. Then there's the sea on the western side. There's Egypt on the southern border. So, so Gaza, in a way, within Gaza, there is much more freedom of movement, if we want to call it that, with respect to the West Bank, uh, which is a lot more complicated because there's the presence of more than half a million uh, settlers. It's, it's, it's a it's a very large number, and they have, you know, as I said, dedicated towns, dedicated facilities, dedicated roads. Uh, they own uh, quite a bit of the land. There's there's industries, there's universities, there's businesses. I mean, this is this is Israel in the West Bank. Uh, uh, this is not something that is necessarily separate. The settlers in the West Bank they vote in Israeli elections. Okay, so so you know they are full citizens in a way, and so the presence of the state, the state of Israel, is is massive. And therefore, the place can be, in a way, better controlled. And in that vein, as I understand it, you're, you're talking about roughly, as you, you said, about half a million um, Israeli settlers. I think it's 2.2, 2.3 million Palestinians. And this may sound like a stupid question, Francesco, but I'm sitting there thinking, I'm an Israeli. There is Israel and there's the West Bank. Why would an Israeli, your average Israeli or whatever kind of Israeli, want to begin a life or to restart a life or to move to an area that you know is going to be hostile to you rather than the relative safety of what I might call mainland Israel or whatever. What is driving that? Is it so? I know a certain amount of it is, is down to religious, fanaticism, the right word, but what else is driving that? Okay, so so the, the, the settlements were originally there technically only on a temporary basis and they would function after 1967 simply as kind of outposts, you know, to, 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 mm. to make sure that Israel wouldn't be overrun within the 1967 Green Line. So, so they, they, they were there in a way to, to kind of signal, okay, we are here. Uh, so if you invade us from the east, you know, we will have this outpost and we'll be able to hold you off and so on. Then they became obviously more an ideological uh, uh, instrument. 
through which particularly right-wing uh, parties and movements in Israel attempted to make a claim on the land of what they call Judea and Samaria. Uh, and, it's, and it's since then that the settlements have expanded quite a bit. Funnily enough, well, funnily enough, I don't know if it's funny, but you know, the paradox is that before the latest Netanyahu government, the Labour Party of Israel was responsible for allowing more settlements in the West Bank than the right-wing governments of the 1970s. But anyway, that's, that's something of an aside. And they have become settlements for different Israeli constituencies. So some of those who have settled there have done so, as you correctly said, for religious slash ideological reasons, you know, to redeem the land that belonged to us and that God gave us. Okay, so there's a group like that, and they are the ones who are difficult to to deal with and to move and, and so on. Then there's a huge chunk, though, which is there for kind of a lifestyle choice. Lifestyle, I mean, they get subsidies to go there. The, the houses are bigger. It's not as overcrowded. Um, and so it is maybe nicer and for less than doing that within Israel itself. And then there are the ones... Um, although it's not as many uh, uh, now that there used to be, but from the early 90s, some of them were resettled there by the government once they came in and immigrated into Israel. So, you know, there's a comp- that's why when we talk about the settler movement, I think we have to be very careful. Um, there's different type of settlers, you know, and the, and the hardcore ones are a minority uh, of the total, but obviously they are the ones who are, politically organized, have organized themselves in some sort of also small paramilitary groups. They are the ones who are poisoning the wells, cutting the trees, and generally harassing uh, 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 Palestinians. And I think they would be the ones, and they are the ones, who would be most difficult to remove if we ever get to this idea of removing settlements from the West Bank. Right. And in that vein, as you said, there is a political solution, but the actors don't want to uh, take it up. And that is the, the, the two state solution, which, unless I'm mistaken, physically, you'd be talking about the, the Palestinian state being based largely where the West Bank is now. But the big problem there is, as, as you've just eloquently pointed out, the, the, the settlements there, I mean, could you envisage a scenario, even including with pressure from the West or whatever, where Israel would withdraw those settlements in deference to any kind of a, a two-state solution that would leave the Palestinians have their own state there? And if not, what is the prospect? So, you know, my feeling, I don't know that as a researcher thinking about feelings is not, it's not great. <laughs> but to be honest, I don't see it. So it was easy easy, comparatively speaking, to remove the settlers from Gaza because few in numbers, um, they were promised a good resettlement package once back in, in Israel. Um, and, you know, even the settlers themselves knew, you know, they were, what, 10,000, 12,000, maybe surrounded by, you know, one at the time was 1.7 or 8 million uh, Palestinians. They, they knew that this was kind of untenable in a way. Uh, so, so it was comparatively easy to remove them, also because more than half wanted to be removed anyway. I think when it comes to the West Bank, it's going to be a lot more complicated, and I don't think any Israeli government would have the 
the I don't, I don't think they would have the spine to do that. Uh, it would be incredibly, incredibly complex, incredibly difficult, and it could even lead to uh, Israeli on Israeli violence, which is something that you know probably they also want to to avoid. This is despite the fact that traditionally settlements are not something that the broader Israeli public approves of. Uh, but again, th- this is this. I think this is go down, goes down to, to, the, to the complexity of the way in which the Israeli political system works. There is no possibility of having a single party with a majority of votes. You always need coalition governments. And the coalitions are always, almost inevitably, quite large because the electoral system does not reward larger parties. And so in those coalitions, you will always inevitably have a party or two parties that are the expression, if you want, of the more hardcore settlement, uh, uh, settlements movement, which means that they can down any government that makes moves against the settlements, unless the voting patterns change considerably. Therefore, I don't see how any Israeli government can remove such a huge number of settlers. So a solution that was kind of proposed at some stage was, well, we leave the large settlements in place because they are already integrated into Israel geographically. And in exchange for these large settlements, Israel gives up two or three percent of its land, namely the lands near the Lake of Tiberias, where there are a lot of Palestinian villages and towns. You know, because now they are within Israel, and so they are Israeli citizens. They are the descendants of the ones who did not flee in 1948, and so we do a kind of a land swap. Really, that's what you know the term probably should be, and that might solve some of the problems because then it'd be easier to remove the smaller uh, settlements, the ones way out by the border with Jordan. But even if you were able to do that. I think there'd be an issue on who controls then the border with Jordan. Would it be a Palestinian state or would the Israelis still control the border with Jordan because they would be afraid that a Palestinian independent state would not necessarily subscribe to the peace agreement and therefore be non-militarized and non-aggressive when in fact now it might have a border with a state or with other Arab states that might supply it with whatever uh, 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 they would want in order to destabilize Israel. So if only the settlers were the issue, there might be a solution. But then the issue is also linked to borders and it's also linked crucially to who controls Jerusalem. Uh, that's the other big one because it has a symbolic value for everyone concerned. It is. It's complex and it's intractable and you have to only hope that... Um if anything is to come out of the events of the last few days, that there might be greater effort internationally and every other way to bring about some kind of a solution. But we can certainly see that it ain't going to happen tomorrow or the next day. No. Um, if, if I may, just on this, th- yeah. th- that is why over the last 15, 20 years, a good few people on, on, on the Palestinian side, but also on the Israeli side, have kind of, you know, started talking about the one-state solution. So then, in fact, that would mean ditching the Oslo peace process, which, the two, you know, in any case, it was kind of gone and has been gone for a long time, and start anew 
on the basis of creating a one-state solution. And it would be a state where two, three communities, so Palestinian, uh, uh, Muslim Palestinians, Christian Palestinians, and Israelis, so Jews, let's say, they, they, they live in one state, but their own kind of private affairs are managed within the community. So, you know, their private uh, contracts, um, burial, weddings, you know, everything that has to do with private law and so on would be managed by each community separately. But there is one state with freedom of movement. So that would solve the problem of the settlements. Now, the settlements are not in Palestine anymore. They're just in this country called now Israel-Palestine. Who controlled the borders is no longer relevant. Now there is one country and this country controls the borders. And then at the political level, you would devise some sort of system where each community has a sort of veto on big policy choices so that then no one feels discriminated against or having kind of being forced to accept choices that they do not want, um, somewhat similar to Northern Ireland, of course, but it, it would work, you know, slightly, slightly different. Mm. And that this would not then be subjected to change despite the changes in demography that might occur over time. But I mean, you know, this is, I think today, this is in the realm of utopia rather than reality. But at the same time, you know, a lot of other kind of, far-fetched ideas about how to solve the conflict were advanced at some stage and they did seem far-fetched at the time and then they ended up happening. Very true and we can only hope that there's some prospect of that occurring. Francesca Cavatorta, listen, thank you very much. It, it, it was a really informative uh, insight into what's going on there and anybody who wants to read further Francesca's book written with uh, Vincent Jurek politics and governance in the Middle East. Francesca, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mick. I'd also like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon, as always, and all you folks who are out there listening to us. Thank you, and we'll talk to you again soon. Take it easy. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are, like, interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.